With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're home alone. You have an uneasy feeling in the darkness. Like someone or something is wanting you. Why is it suddenly cold in this room? You hear footsteps, whispers, or even laughter. You go to check. You feel a presence behind you. And then the fear sets in. I'm K-Town, and you're listening to Paranormal Fears. Jeff Gallen. I'm an author. Right now, I'm also a graphic designer, about 40 years experience. Right now, I'm just about retired. I'm kind of semi-retired, so I'm not doing a lot. I'm, I'm working now teaching kids how to how to work with airbrush guns. So uh, that's what I kind of do part-time, but mostly I'm still writing and studying, learning as much as I can about different things. As far as my books, I have uh, several books I've had published over the last 15 years. Most of them having to do with the paranormal. I've done books on UFOs, reincarnation, ghosts, a bunch of other stuff. And it's just a subject that's been really interesting to me since I was a teenager, really. And once I reached my 40s, I began to get serious about writing, and those were the subjects that naturally appealed to me. So I started to research them and was lucky enough to get uh, Lou Allen International out of uh, out of Minneapolis to pick up a couple of my early books. And so that's what I've been doing uh, since, and just writing different books on different subjects, and then articles, you know, online articles and things like that, and just kind of in seeing what's going to happen next. What's, what's the next thing I'm going to investigate? That is awesome. Okay, so, you know, I mean, I talk to a lot of paranormal researchers. I don't hear about you know, many of them actually crossing over to look at other areas of phenomena like UFOs and things like that. I was wondering, I mean, do you do stuff on Bigfoot? I I didn't see that in your books, but have you looked at that that phenomena as well? Actually, my kind of breakthrough first step in getting published was an article I had written for Fate magazine back in 2003 about the Patterson film. That's that famous uh, uh, bit of footage taken in Northern California back in 1967. You've probably seen it a thousand times on TV. But uh, basically, I was working from the premise that it would have been too difficult to have faked, faked it at that time, especially with the technology available. So, And that kind of jump-started my whole career. I haven't written a book on Bigfoot specifically. Because, I mean, I don't really have anything unique to say about it. There's all there's a lot of books about Bigfoot out there that pretty well covered the subject from every angle. And I'm kind of one of these people that I like to, I don't like to write a book unless I have kind of a different take on it or maybe a different angle. You know, it gives people thinking. 
But yeah, Bigfoot's always been one of the uh, the big areas I've been interested in. And I want you to understand that I'm not really a researcher. I'm more of an investigator. So what I do is I look at a lot of different subjects within the paranormal. And I look at the research that's been done by different groups, how they go about doing it. So I don't really uh, fit into any one category. So I can talk on UFOs. I can talk about Bigfoot. I can talk about Atlantis. Just because I have such a range of interests, and that's just sort of the way I, I approach the subject, my subject matter. Got you. All right, so we want to talk about the paranormal tonight. And in your lifetime, have you experienced anything paranormal ever? Well, not in terms of ghosts, but I have had a, a UFO encounter I could let you know about. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, this happened actually right in downtown Denver, Colorado, uh, at the... Uh, Colorado Free, um, at the uh, university, at Metro University downtown, I was uh, there for a lecture by a guy who was an abductee. I uh, co-wrote a book uh, on a gentleman from Colorado who had been apparently abducted a number of times. Anyway, he, he does lectures around the city. And I was attending one of his lectures. And then during the break, my son and myself went outside, along with a number of other people. And we noticed a, a series of uh, orbs, little white orbs circling each other. There was like about a half a dozen of them, maybe, and they were going in a tight circle, maybe 50 feet over our head. And it was interesting. I was watching these for a minute. Uh, they would get very bright when they got to one side of the circle, and then they would completely vanish on the other side of the circle, and then they would come bright again. And this lasted, oh, I don't know, three or four minutes. If I'd been of thought about it, I probably would have gotten some video footage of it. I don't know how well it would have turned out because, you know, it was very bright and everything, but and all of a sudden, after about four or five minutes, it just sort of dissipated and went away. Now, what I thought about it was I wasn't looking at uh, an extraterrestrial vehicle or anything like that. I was looking at something manipulating matter or energy. So I, I had the feeling that I, it, something was like a, something like I have a light, light show put on for my benefit, and and my sons and other people who are watching it too, and I still to this day wonder really what it was I saw. I have a more complete description of the experience on my uh, website if anyone's interested, but that's uh, so far about the only paranormal experience I've had, even though writing all these books. Did anyone else see what you saw that? That time, well, my son for sure, and uh, but I didn't take the time to like interview other people. You know, I I don't know if they were paying attention. It was over, and we all went back inside the building, and it was kind of one of those things when it happens, you really sort of kind of go blank. You you really don't know what you're experiencing. You don't know what to make of it, and by the time it's over, it's like kind of too late to start doing the research. But yeah, I would have. I, I think in retrospect, if I had asked other people what their experience was, or if anybody had gotten it on video, that would have been great. But nothing showed up on the news or anything, so I, I assume nobody nobody saw it, or at least recorded it uh, at the time. Wow, that is a great sighting. I was wanting to ask you before we get off, you know, really deep into the paranormal, do you think that, and since you looked at the Patterson-Gimlin film and you've looked into the research on that particular, do you believe, like, in conjunction with Bigfoot, maybe there, you know, is some paranormal type stuff that happens, you know, during when those sightings, either before the sighting or after the sighting. I mean, have you ever heard of anything like that 
happening. Even UFO sightings near the yeah, Big exactly. Trip. I've, I've heard reports of people seeing unusual lights and things like this, either prior to or in conjunction with their Bigfoot sighting. I think it's uh, rare, but I've heard some stories of that nature. Some people believe that Bigfoot is an interdimensional creature that can come in and out of our awareness, uh, which is what explains why you know there's no body, why they're why they seem to disappear so suddenly once they're spotted. Um, I'm not really a big proponent of that particular theory, but I know it's out there, and I know people have tried really hard to sort of mesh the two ideas of a of a living creature along with some sort of extraterrestrial connection to it. So I'm I'm open to the evidence. If you can show me something, you know, that more than just a story, I'd be looking I'd love to look at it. But to my own opinion, I think it's simply a, a natural creature that has existed for probably millions of years and we're just uh, now starting to find it. And so you believe the sighting there is totally authentic? The Patterson Gimmel. Yeah, the Patter- in the Patterson case, yes. I think that it, uh, they've done a lot of frame-by-frame analysis of that footage. They've looked at the musculature. They've looked at, uh, I mean, so many different parameters in terms of ratio, in terms of arm, arm length, leg length, how it compares to a human. Obviously, it's either a Bigfoot or it's a guy in a, in a costume. So they can really go very carefully look at it, and they can see whether or not the proportions are human or they're just off a little. And that's what they discovered, if you look at it closely, is that this creature has an anatomy which makes sense for a big animal like that, more so than it would a guy wearing a suit. Guys wearing a suit are fairly easy to identify, especially if they're out in the open like that, and you've got a good five, six, ten seconds to look at them. But in this case, as far as I can tell, all the evidence seems to suggest that this was indeed an actual creature that he had captured. I think just out of dumb luck more than anything else. And uh, to me, I think it's, it remains the standard by which all Bigfoot sightings are gauged off of. Yeah, I believe it's totally authentic as well. And I've had, I forgot his name, uh, he does all the analysis and stuff. And he was the guy that did all the Hollywood costume stuff back in that time. And he said it was... Oh, John Chambers, I think you Who was it? That? No, it wasn't him. John Chambers? No, it was someone else. I forgot. Bill Munns. Bill Munns. Munns. Bill Munns. Yeah. He said it was totally impossible. I mean, because he was making, you know, costumes like that in Hollywood at that time. It was totally impossible. No one could do that. I mean, whoever did that would have a job in in Hollywood. You know what I'm saying? And so that's... Yeah, I mean, I've even seen people try to replicate it today using a, um, a guy in a suit using all the modern techniques and procedures, and they never quite nail it. They get close. And, of course, this is 1967 before we had the level of technology that we have today for special effects. Right, so, right. yeah, I think that's probably one of the strongest arguments for it. Absolutely. Okay, so let's get off into the paranormal. Okay, so have you ever went out, I mean, do you physically go out onto locations that are reported to be haunted? Tell me about your, how do you go about Looking into those. Well, well, like I said, I investigate the investigators. So what I do is I would tag along on a couple of uh, ghost hunts. I, there's uh, several groups locally that I have kind of contacted and, and watched how they work. So what I do is while they're looking for ghosts, I'm watching what they do while they're looking for ghosts. Just kind of how the process works, what kind of equipment they use. 
So when I wrote my book, The Case for Ghosts, I not only talk about ghosts, but I talk about all the equipment they use, why they use it, the way they do. And I went on a couple of hunts with them. Nothing really much happened. They're still a lot of fun. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, I didn't see anything unusual. But I do get, I do get, uh, like energy hits. I can go into a room sometimes and, and kind of feel the energy, but I've never actually seen anything visible yet. What about when you're observing them and the equipment that they're using supposedly is supposed to pick up that energy? Have you witnessed that? I mean, their gauges going off or whatever, and you think those were legitimate hits or tell me about that. Well, you know, the thing is with uh, ghost hunting is I think we have a kind of a screwy idea of how it works. TV has shown us that it seems like they get something every time they go in. And most ghost hunters will tell you that they'll do maybe 10 investigations a year, and they might get something from one or two of them. So a lot of the time, it's just sitting around and nothing really happens. You know, unfortunately, on the hunts that I went on, we didn't really get any hits or anything. However, these groups record everything. So they showed me some of the stuff that they had caught on previous hunts or searches. And uh, and they're very careful. Most of them are very techno-savvy people, and they're very good about explaining away things. So when they keep something that they can't explain, then that's pretty good evidence. But like uh, to answer your question directly, no, nothing really happened during my hunts. So I couldn't really see what, you know, what they would do in that case. I do know they were very careful, though. They had some kind of a shadow or something, they would call everybody and say, where are you at? They would try to define where the shadow came from among the group. And then if they couldn't do, if they couldn't figure out whose shadow that was, and that would be considered evidence. But they always tried to debunk it on the spot first before jumping on the, uh, the idea that this is a, a ghost. And you know what? I mean, I've had other people on the show, investigators on the show, and I always ask that, like, how long do you stay out on the site? Do you feel that that is an adequate amount of time to, you know, try to come to some kind of conclusion whether or not the space is truly haunted? Uh, surprisingly, one guy said, oh, yeah, every time we go out, you know, we get something, you know, I'm like, are you really? <laughs> I mean, I was just saying that to myself. Are you really getting stuff every time? There's no way. You know, this stuff is jumping off and you're witnessing all types of phenomena at every single site you're going to. But he said, you know, they've went to thousands of places and they've gotten things. And no, I don't believe that. But do you think, I mean, you've looked at these people and you follow them around. Do you feel like they're they're going out onto these sites long enough to get some type of idea whether or not, you know, something's going on truly in well, the space? Well, generally, they're only there about five or six hours you know, overnight. And and that's not really, when you start wrapping up around four o'clock in the morning and they're out of there usually by five or six. So I don't know if that's long enough. It would depend on the site. If it's a, if it's a site that's known for its paranormal activity, it's very active paranormally, you might get lucky enough to get stuff fairly quickly. But I would think you would need to visit a site numerous times to get, you know, to find something. I noticed that even people who live in supposedly haunted houses, they don't see ghosts all the time. They might only see it something once every few weeks. You know, and that's living in a haunted house. And they might only have some sort of a paranormal experience once in a blue moon. It's enough to get their attention. 
but they don't, they're not seeing ghosts, you know, walking around all the time. So I don't know how investigators would expect to be that lucky. Now, granted, investigators have equipment that a homeowner wouldn't have. They have a means of detecting energy and ions and, and particles in the air and things like that. But unless the, the entity was extraordinarily active and maybe even a little aggressive, your chances of catching it in four or five hours in a single uh, um, investigation are, I would think, pretty remote. Yeah, me as well. I mean, if you're going to invest time and money in buying equipment, then you need to also invest the time to investigate the site properly. I mean, why would you spend thousands of dollars on equipment and you're only going to spend like four or five hours at every site? It doesn't make any sense. Like, especially if you're in the area, I I know that they try to go, you know, to try to cover a, um, a distance or radius within the area they live. But, you know, for the ones that you can and you can stay out there longer, they need to. I mean, but you're you're right. In every instance that I've ever asked an investigator, they're only there overnight, including the ones we see on TV. I mean, they're only there overnight. So. Right. There's another question as to why they do it at night. Um, you know, because nighttime is, you know, when your senses are kind of heightened and you're hyper aware for any sort of little noise. So a mouse in the wall could be a ghost. I was always thinking that most people who encounter a ghost usually don't encounter it in the dark. They normally see it in daylight or in good light right in front of them. So I was always wondering why they need to do all these things at night and then carry around flashlights and stuff with them. I mean, I understand that it's quieter. Certainly, you can turn off all the electronics and stuff in the house. But I think a lot of the nighttime investigations are really more for effect than real science. I also wanted to point out that there's um, there's kind of two sets of ghost hunters out there. There's the, the genuine professionals who do a lot of preliminary work and they really look at the house and carefully study it. And then there's kind of hobbyists who, if someone contacts them by email and says, I think there's a ghost in my house, will be over there that afternoon, you know, with their EM meters. <laughs> and they don't really do a, a good preliminary. And some people, I think, just have fun with it. I don't think they're really looking for uh, evidence or just this is kind of what they enjoy doing. So you got to be careful when you're, if you're going to use the services of a ghost hunting group, and almost every city has a whole bunch of them online, you want to really make sure that they're established and that maybe they're certified by TAPS or one of these larger organizations that can vouch for them. So, you know, but the buyer beware. Right, right. So, okay, that's that's really interesting there. And you have a unique perspective on it. I mean, you've actually, you investigate the, the in ghost investigators or whatever. So in your opinion, from the ones that you've investigated, I'm not get, trying to get you to say anything bad about them, but I mean, do you feel like they're going into it with a, come to some type of, they're trying to help the person, you know, the people, whatever places that they are investigating. Are they coming into it with a legitimate concern to help these people? Or is it more of a like, you know, an adrenaline type thing? OK, we'll see what we can get at this space or whatever. I think a lot of it is their own search for the truth. I think a lot of the ghost hunters I've met really are curious about the afterlife. And I think they're trying to find answers for themselves a lot of times. Uh, I do believe there are those that 
are are there to help other people. And but I think helping the other person is first of all, it's not guaranteed. You know, if, it's nice if it does help somebody. But let's say you go in and you do find evidence of the paranormal in a house, and you tell the homeowner, "Well, this is what we found." I don't know if that's necessarily going to help them. It may just actually make it worse. So if you're going in there with the idea of helping someone, I don't know if that's really going to happen very often. Unless you have a good medium or sensitive who really can cleanse houses and stuff like that, they will go in sometimes and they will try to do a cleansing. And that can be very beneficial to the family. But I've also heard of times when that doesn't work either. So if you go into it with the idea that you're going to help people, that's more of a byproduct. You might help them. You might make things worse. You don't really know. Most of them that go into it, though, are usually they're usually pretty sure that there's already such a thing as ghosts because they've had enough experiences that they don't go in it really objectively like a skeptic would. That's why I think a good ghost hunting team should always have one kind of skeptical person on the, on the team who likes to you know, explain things away because that makes it a more well-rounded team. But if you're going in there looking for evidence of the paranormal and everybody really is convinced that there is such a thing, there's a good chance you're going to find it. Just, you know, just uh, you're going to misidentify something as being paranormal in nature. Yeah, just because you, you believe in it and you want it to be there. Well, yeah, you're looking for validation for your own beliefs and your own your own uh, quest for answers. Right, right. Now, have you ever been out on a site where they've found something and then they, you know, it, that you felt con- it was convincing and they've shared this with the homeowner and then maybe helped them to get some help? I mean, has that has that ever happened with you? Not in my experience. Most of the places that the groups that I hung out with would go to are usually businesses. They would be like bars or hotels, city buildings. They didn't do a lot of private residences. Uh, I think that's kind of a separate thing. A, a lot of ghost hunters don't like to really do private homes just because it, it's so much work involved with it. And unless you have a real good reason to do that particular home, that's a lot of work for nothing usually. So they tend to go to places that have like a, a tradition of being haunted, you know, like an abandoned prison or something like that, where they can set up their equipment and really do their stuff. But no, I've never seen anybody really confront a homeowner and say, this is what we found. I know TAPS does this. If you ever watched you know, Jason and that, that whole team when they used to have their show, they would go over it with, with the homeowner and tell them what they found. And that's really the way to do it. If you do find something, you should sit down with the homeowner and say, we didn't find anything if, if that's what happened. But that's usually not going to be very satisfying. Because if they had gone to the trouble of contacting you and they, they really believe they have something going on and you come back and say, eh, didn't find anything, sorry, they'll just go get another group to come in and investigate. <laughs> you know? So there's a lot of pressure there, too, to find something. And, you know, unless, to me, good investigative team has, it has your, your kind of your techno nerds who are in charge of the equipment. You have a kind of an older person who's more objective and level-headed, and then you have a good medium, a good sensitive that can really sense these energies, and then you have a good, well-rounded team, because the medium can say, you know, I'm, I'm getting a lot of vibrations from this room, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling something really heavy in this area, and then the investigators can put their equipment on that area, or confine it to that area, they can maybe even do an EVP session, 
So if you have all three of those elements like that, then you would have a pretty good, pretty good ghost group. Yeah, I feel a psychic medium, a really well-rounded, or I would say, proven, <laughs> definitely mm-hmm. proven psychic medium is necessary for these teams, really. So they're not wasting their time, you know. I mean, because that is a skill that. You know, where she could tell imme- he or she could tell immediately, you know, whether the space is occupied by something, some type of energy. Have you went to investigations that had a psychic medium or have they all just been like ordinary people? You know, the groups that I've been hanging out with were more on the, they were a little bit more on the skeptical side, which I thought was a strength, actually. But they had never brought in a medium because I think they were not. They were a little leery of that, too. The problem is with mediums is that there's really no way to gauge whether someone really is a medium or they're just, oh, they believe they are. It's, it's, you have to kind of take some time to build up a track record. But the thing they're is, they're going to have a reading with them, have a reading with them. And then they'll see. Yeah, what's their background? Do they have the ability to contact uh, the other side? You know, have they had that contact on a regular basis? And there are people who do this. And if, if they have a good track record of reliable readings like that, then, you know, that's something you can look at as a tool. But even then, a medium can only help you so far. They can't, they usually can't say, okay, this is a man named John. He's 62 years old. He died of a gunshot wound. He's standing right here next to me. I mean, they're usually not that clear. It's more of a, just a general sense of the energy. And it's hard to prove or disprove stuff like that. You know, now if you get a name or a person, then you can check that against historical records and see if there was such a person who lived there. But unless you can get that kind of solid evidence, it's very hard to really know whether you're uh, you're just finding what you're hoping to find or you're actually finding something legitimate. Right. See, that's that's my point for spending several days, maybe even a week out on a site, because a psychic medium, even if the, a team didn't have a psychic medium, they could use EVPs. Maybe they they're able to pick up voices or names and then go go and research the historical you know, history on the place. And maybe they can make connections there and kind of confirm what they're picking up. But, you know, like, that's great that you said that. Okay. So I'm going to ask you about the historical part of it. Like, do, are the teams, do, are any of the teams doing that? Do they ever research that? Yeah, I mean, well, um, it can be kind of a two-edged sword because if you do a lot of research on a place before you go in there, you're sort of already biased. I mean, after. You yeah, you need to go after, not before. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I'm not totally get what you're saying. Go ahead. Because then you'll look for evidence to support what you found historically. They usually don't do a lot of research unless they get something solid, like a good EVP or something. Or if the, they have a medium that's sensitive enough to say, okay, I'm sensing a little girl who died here. Now, that's something you could conceivably look up go to the public library and look through microfiche and stuff and see if you can find anything like that. If you get a name, sometimes people are lucky enough to get a name from one of these entities and then they can really do some research. But if you don't have something that you can look up at the library, then there's not much reason to do a lot of you know, historical research on it. You have to have something to work from. Got to. Yeah, you're right. You have to get a name or something to give you a starting point so you know what you're looking for. So how do you actually find your teams? Are you traveling outside your area or you tell me how you you go about that? I don't have the resources to do a lot of traveling, so I do it local. Fortunately, Denver metro area is big enough 
that there are at least a good half dozen ghost hunting groups here. What you do is you just go actually into um, Google and you just Google, you put ghost hunters and then put your city. And usually you'll get a number of sites will come up and you just go to their websites and look at over, see what kind of work they've done, how many, they, you know, how professional their site looks, how long they've been doing it. You know, if they just started, you know, five months ago, you might want to be wary. But if they've been doing it for, you know, 15 years, that's, you know, that's pretty good. So once I would find a group, then I would try to get in contact with them and talk to their, who's ever in charge of them, let them know what I'm doing. I tell them, you know, I'm a, I'm a writer. I'm doing, I'm investigating ghost huntings. And I'd be curious if you'd want, you know, want to talk to me about it. You get to know the people and then they'll usually invite you to a hunt with them. Once they are uh, persuaded, you're not from skeptical inquirer or something, and uh, that it's it's actually pretty easy to find these groups. Just really make sure you do your research up front. It's just like getting a tax advisor. You want to make sure the guy knows what they do they're doing before you hire them. You're exactly right. And so, since you've been, you know, actually looking into these groups, have any suggestions for people? If they're looking to have a team come into their home or business as far as vetting is concerned, I mean, you go in there, you follow these people around and you say, you know, you haven't seen them actually, you know, get any evidence really. I mean, but so how do people, you know, kind of vet who to allow in their home or business? Well, a lot of times it's word of mouth. Quite often, the people kind of know who the groups are that are legit and which ones are just hobbyists. So you can uh, you can ask for references. You can find out what other places they have done before. Have they done a lot of personal residences and have they done it for a while? They're usually pretty honest about sharing with you, you know, what they have found. A lot of it's gut instinct, too. You just got to kind of trust your gut. And if you get kind of a vibe off somebody that maybe they're a little over-enthusiastic or not necessarily above board, then, you know, usually you'll pick up on that. But for the most part, just trust your gut. Look at the, what they've done in the past. They should have at least a couple of years of of having done this. They should have, you know, what they do normally is they will put on their website each haunting they did and what they found. They'll put any recordings or photos that they took there, and then they'll so you can kind of look through their their resume, if you will, of hauntings that they have explored. And if they charge money, though, that's a red flag. None of these groups should ever want to charge you for it, for any money at all to do this. If they say, well, you know, it's going to cost you 100 bucks for us to come out and check it out, then just move on to the next group. Because these people will never, ever charge you money for this. Got you. Okay. And so I'm going to talk to you about, if you don't mind, Jeff, are there any historical sightings, you know, over the years that have really, you know, captured your attention and, and that you've looked into a little more. I mean, there are some really famous hauntings, but I'm just wondering, do you have any in mind? I think the most interesting one that I have ever uh, encountered was the Amityville Horror. Yeah, that, that book that came out years ago about the house in New, uh, Long Island, New York, that um, the son had killed all of his family during their sleep. And the people moved in, and apparently all kinds of paranormal activity happened there. This was a big book back in the 70s. It actually became a movie, and I'm sure your listeners are aware of it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But there is uh, a number of groups have investigated that house, and uh, most of them come away without much. 
But there was one photo I thought was interesting. They would set up a number of cameras in there that would be uh, tripped by motion sensors. And then they'd make sure everybody was out of the building. And one of the pictures they caught was of, it looks like a young boy, probably 10, 12 years old, kind of peeking around the corner. And there's actually almost like a reflection off his glasses. It looks that clear. And there was actually was two young brothers. The older brother had shot one, I think, was eight and one was 12 or 10. And it does look like one of the brothers actually was caught on there. So I thought that was really interesting from a historical standpoint. They've also had people who've done EVPs at the Sharon Tate murder scene out in California. She was actress who was murdered along with several other guests in her home by Charlie Manson gang. And they would do EVPs with them, and they would give them confirming information from some of the victims of who they were and information about themselves that was verifiable. So I, I do think that uh, it can be done. You're very lucky if you can get that kind of evidence. And it usually only happens in places that are fairly well-known for being haunted. But uh, if you can get any of that confirmed, it's, it's really a, a validating information. Yeah. Okay. So I didn't know about the Sharon Tate thing. I don't think so. So I'm going to have to do something on that one. That is really neat and interesting. Let me ask you about the Amityville um, case, however. You know, there was some like controversy about that. You know, they thought the Luxes were lying and he was doing some things maybe to gain publicity. I don't know if you've heard any of that. Have you? Yeah, actually, I knew that there was a lot of controversy about this. That there was a, a an idea that the Lutzes were trying to, you know, make some money off of this. I'm not really sure what I believe. I, I do think that there probably is something paranormal in that house, whether it was to the extent that he tried to portray it. Because in the book, they have like 30 days of living in hell. You know, I mean, they have all kinds of horrible things happen to them almost on a daily basis. Um, they even had a, a priest come in to bless the house who was kind of chased off, you know. And so there's other corroborating witnesses to what they, they told to some degree. But then it's also interesting that the, the people who bought the house later on had no similar issues. So you don't know if this was a case of uh, residential haunting or if it was something that the Luxes had brought into the home with them, or if it's something they just simply made up out of whole cloth. So to me, I approach these things with kind of like an, ob an objectivity. It's like, okay, I don't necessarily believe it's true, but I'm not prepared to say it's all a hoax either. I need to see evidence on both sides of it. My guess is, is that the Lutz may have had some sort of experiences there, because they did abandon the house after a month and just moved out all at once. And I mean... That's quite a big risk to take. <laughs> you mean they just bought the house, they move into it, and then they abandon it a month later. So something must have happened to them. Now, whether it was exaggerated, and especially the movies, you know, took a lot of license with it and, and made really made up a story. But I think something did happen. I'd just be curious to know what it was. Me as well. Ed, that is a good point. I mean, why would you buy a house and then move out of it so quickly, you know, without having another yeah. one? <laughs> That's great. Right. I mean, they just like packed a bag and went out the door. Yeah, they left everything <laughs> behind. I mean, that's not normal behavior. You know what I'm saying? I mean, who can yeah, afford to do well, that? 
So, so I was, I'm more, actually more curious about the brother. The guy's name is Ronald DeFeo. And he was the oldest child of a family, I think, of six. And he just, I mean, he was a drug addict and stuff like that. But at three o'clock in the morning, he just gets up and shoots his whole family in their sleep. And you always wonder if there's something in that house that induced him to do this. You know, I mean, it was a fairly dysfunctional home to begin with. But that's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of dysfunctional homes where one of the children don't shoot everybody else in their sleep. You know, so it's almost like something, something was impelling this guy in his kind of drug-addled state to do these things. Yeah. It's just, that, that's what, to me, is the really interesting part of that whole, that whole scenario. That is a really interesting part. Yeah, something happened, like something took over his body. Did he ever say, do you know if, the, if he, I mean, he's he talked about it a lot. Did he ever say like he felt like something was, had possessed him or do you know? I mean, I haven't heard like things about that case in a long time, but did he ever say that? Well, you know, Ron DeFeo passed away just a, right, not too long last ago. year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, when they do interviews of him, the problem is, is he would never tell you the same story twice. You know, one time he would say, I was, you know, people broke in and they held me prisoner while they shot my family. And then he'd admit, well, I shot them. And then he would say, well, I shot some of them, but my sister shot the other ones. So you could never really figure out this, what this guy was talking about. He, he seemed to me to be not quite all there mentally, obviously. But as far as I know, he never claimed that he was possessed by anything. But he also uh, claimed that he didn't remember a lot of what happened, too. Now, whether that's a lie, I don't know. I kind of feel that he was probably a little bit high and something impelled him to do that. I think he was hatred of his parents. And once he shot them, he just, you know, finished off the job. You know, I just think that he hated his whole family. And he doesn't even remember a lot of what happened. But he he did admit at several points that he had done it. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if that was a demon possession or not, but it's uh, it's certainly interesting to investigate. Yeah. Now let's talk about you know demonic possession. Have you ever seen or heard of a case that you feel is totally legitimate? Well, I'm a little leery about uh, the whole idea of demons. I think that's more of a religious construct. I do believe that there are lesser energies. I think everything vibrates at an energy level. You know, angels and spiritually involved people vibrate at a much higher level than others do. You know, so your people that are violent and angry all the time, they, they vibrate at a much lower level. And I think that there are entities out there that vibrate at that low level and they feed off of fear. So if they can get some kids with a Ouija board, they can scare these kids and then pulling that, that energy from that fear. So I do think that there are entities out there that will oppress people. If you are already, like, say, bipolar and you have problems with depression, these entities can pick up on that energy and, and kind of feed it. And that's how they get their energy, is by keeping you in sort of a state of fear and anger, and they will build on that. So I don't know if anyone can actually lose complete control of their abilities a demon, like a demon can just take you over and make you do stuff that you don't want to do. I think that they can influence you. They certainly can encourage you to do something that you would probably never normally do if you'd thought about it. But in terms of actually taking it over so you no longer have control of your body, I don't believe that happens. But 
it's something I'm open to. I know that there are people who believe that in such a thing as demon possession, but I think it's more oppression and maybe just your, it just kind of opens the door for your own inner pain and darkness to have kind of a, an outlet for itself. So the sale is a good example. A man who had all this built up rage inside him, all he would need is a lower density being to sort of touch that off while he's in a maybe an already inebriated state, and the rest of it takes care of itself. Yeah, interesting. And one other haunting I want to ask you about. What about the conjuring? About the what? The conjuring. The that conjuring. supposedly happened in, in Connecticut. Let me look up. Her name was Andrea Perrin. I have to admit, I am not familiar with this. Really? <laughs> well, I, I'm sorry. I haven't really been writing on the paranormal for a few years. I've been uh, moving off into other directions. So I'm not keeping current on a lot of this. Oh, no wor- No worries at all. No worries. It, yeah, it happened I mean, like years just- ago, years ago. And it was a case where Ed and Lorraine Warren investigated uh-huh. up in Connecticut. Have you looked at that? Yeah. Well, actually, they also did the Amityville. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, they did. Uh, or- Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Same couple. Same so, couple. yeah. So, it's the same. Yeah. They, they're very controversial. I think one of them is, I know one of them has passed. I'm not sure if both of them have passed. They both of them have passed. Yeah. yeah. They were quite popular in the, in the 70s and 80s. You actually should check out this, this a little bit more, but it, it's, well, all it shows here is that it's a film. I don't know what it's based off of. Was it based off true events, right? Yeah, it's supposed to be, but you know how Hollywood is. A lot of it is not true. And there's a lot of controversy behind that too about, you know, they made a lot of things up, stuff like that. And the Warrens, there was a lot of controversy, you know, with their cases as well. So I'm just, I didn't know if you looked at them at all ever. Yeah, I do think that. They may have gotten caught up in their own fame a little bit. You know, a lot of these people, I think, start out very legit. And if they start having some success with it, and maybe a book deal or something like that, they seem to get kind of caught up with it. And then they're under a lot of pressure to continue to produce. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So there could be an element of that in there where they're maybe a little bit, they're not being objective enough in what they're coming up with. But I have heard stories, and these are anecdotal stories, I can't prove them, of groups that have sent them video that they had taken of a haunting, and they would just never get the video back. So, they, you know, they would send them wow. to them for their uh, opinion, and they would just never they would just never get back to them with it. And when they try to follow up, they could never get a hold of them. So I don't know what's going on with them, but I think there's probably more Hollywood than horror with a lot of these groups. And they may be quite legitimate. I don't know one way or the other, but I do think that they've been taken for a ride by Hollywood in the aftermath. Yeah, that is a good point. There's stuff back to them, you know. They it's probably one copy of whatever, and they didn't get it back. So wow. Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I actually asked this group why they did this. This is a fairly well-known group that sent this to her. I think the thing is, is that uh, because of their fame, you just trust them implicitly right off the bat. Right, right. And sometimes you get burned when you do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No doubt. So you do have to be careful. No doubt. All right. Well, Jeff, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation with you. Why don't you tell my listeners where they can find out more information about you and keep up with any other projects you may be working on? 
Well, I'd be glad to. I appreciate you having me on your show. Uh, listeners can get a hold of my uh, look at my books and a lot of my other stuff I have online at ourcuriousworld.com. It's O-U-R, curious, C-U-R-I-U-S, world, W-R-L-D.com. There's a, a number of sections in there. You can look on, under cryptozoology, UFOs. There's a ghost section. And speaking of the ghost section, there's also a link in there to spirit photos. People have sent me photos of what they think are ghosts over the years. And I have a whole series of them on there that they can look. And uh, I, I put the research that I did on them. And uh, people might really enjoy uh, looking at some uh, potentially authentic ghost photos. That's awesome. I'll, I'll make sure I venture over there as well. And uh, what's your next book? Are you working on something now or what are you doing there? Well, I'm, working, I'm trying to move into the area of uh, fiction, which oh, is really? much more okay. difficult uh-huh. to get uh, published. I try to write historical novel, novels with some sort of paranormal elements to it. And so I'm still marketing a lot of these and sort of look, looking for agents and things of that nature. But uh, right now I'm going through, you know, a couple of knee surgeries and stuff, so I'm kind of not doing a lot right now. But I'm hoping to get back involved here pretty soon. Very good. Well, if you have anything, come down the pipe, you know, let me know. And I can I can pass it over to my listeners, okay? Sure, and if you ever want to do a show on something outside of ghosts, uh, I'm available for you too. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so we'll we'll chat about that. All right, Jeff Denelik, my special guest. Jeff, many blessings to you, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. I sure appreciate it. And I love talking to you. It's a lot, a lot of fun. Thank you for listening. I invite you to follow my other podcast, Mysterious Radio. Please share this show with others that are interested in the paranormal. I want to give a special thanks to our co-creator and executive producer, Kim Kyle, who brought this show to you today. And working hard behind the scenes, our team of four, I want to thank them as well. I am your host, K-Town, and you're listening to paranormal fears. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Is there anything more satisfying than finding something that perfectly lines up with your taste and checks all the boxes? Like getting the perfect fit with a suit from Indochino. Their suits are made to measure and totally customizable with endless options. From timeless classics to bold statements, you can express your style exactly how you want. Choose your own cut, fabric, lining, buttons, lapels, and more to create the suit of your dreams, all at a surprisingly affordable price. They also offer fully customizable blazers, pants, outerwear, women's wear, and more. Every Indochino piece is made to your exact measurements, and they make getting measured easy. Simply set up your measurement profile in less than 10 minutes. You can send your measurements online from the comfort of your home or make an appointment at one of our showrooms. Find the perfect fit with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code PODCAST to get 10% off any purchase of $3.99 or more. That's 10% off with code PODCAST.